0: Welcome to Under the Oaks. I'm Warren Thompson. And I'm Pastor Trent Sari. We're coming to you today from the belly of Western Kashkenang Lutheran Church, located in inner city Pleasant Springs, Wisconsin. The topic for discussion today is uh, one that I think you'll find interesting. It's it's creation. Obviously, everybody has an understanding or a viewpoint of our origins. Uh, We call the study of origins cosmology. And how you understand or what you think about how the world came to be and how you came to be obviously impacts how you live your life. And I say that uh, in reference to contrasting the two popular worldviews that we'll be contrasting today, which is that of biblical creationism and that of Darwinian evolution. So... Stick around and we'll explore this topic by what the Bible says. It's a topic we could obviously spend many hours on, uh, but our hope is that we're going to get some experts in this field in the future that we can interview and, and bring those interviews to you as well through this podcast. So, as we think about the big questions in our lives, how was the world that we live in made? And the Bible simply says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's not a a wonder, according to the Bible, about where these things came from. On the other hand, when you look at what is popular in our culture, you come up with uh, things like the Big Bang Theory, not the television show. And the idea there says that, in essence, everything came about completely by accident in a random set of circumstances there was no order, there was no purpose, it just kind of happened. There was a big bang, there was nothing, and all of a sudden there's something. Which, of course, is a very strange way to speak, because we don't see anything like that in our world, and yet that's the most plausible theory according to seculars, those who wish to uh, define creation or the world we live in apart from the Bible, apart from God. You know, If you can write God out of the script, you have to come up with something. And that's the best explanation that science has given us. Now, obviously, when we speak about creation, nobody was there to see it. So, I think we have to be careful when, when uh, we, we hear some of these ideas thrown around out there in textbooks, in our schools, in our universities, and it's called science. A lot of it is not science. It's theoretical. So, we talk about the theory of evolution. We talk about the Big Bang theory. This is not science. Science is something that's observable and repeatable. So, we all have the same set of evidence, sort of, that we're presented with in this world that we live in. Which theory best explains the evidence that we have? And I think a lot of Christians have been led to believe that the Bible is unscientific, whereas the theory of evolution is very scientific, and nothing could be further from the truth when we when we take a look at the evidence which theory best explains the evidence that is out there and to a t no matter what what area of science you speak of whether you're talking about astronomy or geology or biology you know genetics whatever it might be the biblical model of creation is in fact in a certain sense more scientific because we we call science something that's uh, absolutely true and repeatable obviously Again, when we talk about creation, nobody was there. Uh, but, you know, luckily for us, God was. And he records what happened for us in the pages of Holy Scripture. So this is what, what it says in Genesis 1-3. It says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. So we see the mechanism by which things came into being. God simply spoke it into being. Things that were, were not there, that did not exist, Uh, He created how? Through his word. And that's what the book of Hebrews says. Hebrews 11.3 By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So we say it was a creation ex nihil, out of nothing. God simply spoke things into being. Now, that implies that things have a purpose, that there's, uh, there's order, there's beauty to it, perhaps, you know. Uh, whereas the Big Bang Theory, basically, you would have to say, why is this here?
1: I don't know. And I, it, even if I'm remembering this correctly, it's, it's Stephen Hawking in his uh, book, A Brief History of Time, has everything laid out as far as what happened, when it happened, and going working backwards, and it goes down to 0.00001 second. Yeah. But what happens before that, Oh, we don't know right that that's maybe where God comes in, God started it, yeah, but then it all just evolved and and came to be naturally well that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense right I and mean, it might it might be a good explanation for uh, for not believing the Bible, but it really doesn't make sense that it just all just started rolling along
0: there, yeah, that's a good point there there are many gaps in the theory of evolution and and the the first most glaring one is. How, how do you get something from nothing? Right. You have to have an explanation for that.
1: In Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heaven's and earth. Well, he was the only thing in existence. Yeah, God was there. That was it. Yeah. So everything else was
0: created. Right. He spoke it into being through his powerful word. And, you know, of course, the next big debate would be how long did it take? And, you know, I think Christians being bombarded by this theory of evolution over and over and over through the decades have been belittled or made to feel like they're holding on to old uh, myths and legends that the Bible teaches, and somehow they need to reconcile what the Bible teaches with science, so-called science. Right. And so you have some that have taken the position known as theistic evolution. Some Christians think that uh, you know the Bible... Doesn't really give us all the details, and so God probably created everything, but He used the processes of evolution to bring it about. So they would say both things are true: the Bible is true, and evolution is true.
1: It's a neat and tidy little way of putting it,
0: except for one major problem. Right. The Bible says that God did it in six days. Exodus twenty: In six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And of course, the the evolutionary theory says. Millions and trillions of years ago. It begins like all good fairy tales do. Long ago and far away in a distant
1: in a distant land. Well, it takes time for things to change well, and evolve. And
0: it makes it more believable, right? The, right? the more time you can add into it, the more possible, you know, the right. idea that it could be possibly true. It must have
1: taken a long time because I've been alive for X number of years, whatever you, know. whatever you want to say, and then— that really hasn't changed, yeah. so it must have taken a really long time Millions for that to happen. Millions and trillions. Right. Millions and trillions. I mean,
0: the more the more zeros you can add, the more plausible it is that right. it could have happened that way.
1: Well, oh, yeah, that's possible, yeah.
0: But uh, so this theistic evolutionary theory, this idea that you can reconcile the Bible with the theory of evolution, runs into a snag when it comes to the six days of creation. So a lot of Christians will say, well, this represents a long period of time. The days here are not literal 24-hour days. They're long periods of time. The Bible does say a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day to the Lord. And they think they've got a point there. I would, I would ask you to look at that verse again. To the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. He doesn't say this is what is, you know, this is what time is. You know, He's
1: not bound by time. We are.
0: Right. So, to, to, to try to say that is actually kind of a foolish uh, argument, but the Bible says, here's how it describes the, the six days of creation. There was evening, and there was morning, the first day, the second day, the third day, so on and so forth, in a similar way that we reckon our day. You know, we've got morning, we've got evening, 24-hour period, one day, and that's exactly the way Genesis 1 speaks about the days of creation. They were six natural and consecutive days. These were not uh, long periods of time. The, the word there is the same word that's used for our normal reckoning of a day, yom. So, you know, it's just not, it's not something that you can read into the Bible. The idea of theistic evolution that you can read millions and trillions of years into the Bible, it just does not allow it. And there are other verses that that reiterate that. So, when we when we look a little bit closer at the days of creation we see that god created everything as i said in six natural and consecutive days six 24-hour periods but what he did on each day is rather interesting if you want to read the account this comes in genesis chapter 1 and i would encourage you to do that we're not going to read through the whole thing but but there are some interesting details for instance uh, we see that there's even design or there's order to what is created on which days. And it's not maybe the kind of order that you might think. You'd expect everything to sort of follow in a logical fashion. On the first day, we're told that there's the earth in darkness and chaos, and then there's light. The second day, God creates the expanse or the sky. The third day, the arrangement of dry land and water, plant life. The fourth day, the heavenly bodies, the, you know, the stars and so on. Uh, the fifth day, fish, sea animals and birds. And then finally on the sixth day, land animals and man himself. Now, it's hard to really see any order in that, especially if you're just listening to this. What is the order of the design that is reflected in what's created on which days? And for that, you'd almost have to take these, these days of creation and place them into two columns. In the first column, I would place days one through three. And in the second column, four through six, and then you could draw a line one to four, two to five, three to six. And what you'll see is there's a correlation, there's a parallel between what's created on the first day and what God does then in that parallel day. So the first day he creates the earth and darkness, chaos and light. The fourth day he creates the heavenly bodies, those things that give light. You kind of go, wait a second, there was light before there was a sun?
1: Ah, yeah,
0: yeah. And interestingly enough, in the book of Revelation, there is no more sun either because this, uh, you know, God is there and he's the one who gives it light. So it sounds strange to, to our minds, but certainly uh, it's very intriguing. The second day he creates the expanse or the sky. And if we look at the fifth day, the parallel day, we see that he creates the birds that fill that sky and uh, the fish that fill the waters and the sea animals. The third day he arranges dry land and water, and then plant life, and on the sixth day, he puts animals on the land and then creates man. So there's this sort of parallel structure that obviously gives evidence of order, design, thought. You know, It's not completely just random chance things. And Do you have any comments or questions in regard to that one, Warren?
1: Well, it's, it's six days, I mean, he could have done it in a matter of minutes. He could have done the whole six days in a sure. matter of minutes. So I mean, six days, is that just for our benefit as a guide for us, as we'll, we might see later on?
0: It's a, that's a great question. I mean, so some people will say that, too. You know, why, why six days? Why not seven? Why not four? Why not three? And, uh, you know, the short answer is I, I'm not—I don't know. You have to ask God. But on the other hand, I do think it's interesting that, uh, of course, the Bible does mention what God does on the seventh day, right? Right. He rests. He he rests from his work of creation. Uh, he sees everything that he's made and that's good, but he sets apart the seventh day. Right. It's a day of rest.
1: Right. And it's also setting in the six days. It, it's a it's a good way for us to see the order that he did things, and then you know, as it culminates in in the creation of man. But. This is a very orderly way to do things.
0: Well, in some ways, our our weeks are are patterned after this, right? So right. We, we have a work week where we work for five or six days, and then we make sure that we have a day of rest. But, uh, you know, obviously the day of rest is going to have a little different significance. It's got a spiritual significance for the people of God, and it's in that day that we certainly set aside time for receiving God's gifts as he comes to us in his word and sacraments. But we'll talk more about that. Later on, when we talk about the commandment to to observe the Sabbath day and to keep it holy and so on, we want to talk about the creation of man at this point. So, how did God create man? And this comes to us from Genesis chapter 2, where we read that the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So, man, in contrast, to the animals, has a certain personal touch from God. There's going to be another distinction in that we're going to see in the next uh, reading that we have here. But the, the point here is that God took and fashioned from the dust a man, and then he himself breathed into him life. Now, th- that brings up a, a scientific question, I suppose, and one we could muse on for quite a while. But what is it? What is the essence of life? What gives, what animates The body what is the life force i mean we understand the biological processes by which life is sustained or uh, we can explain how life is created in, in terms of reproduction but where does that life force come from that animates this this being into a new entity unto itself you know how does that happen we can't recreate that so the point here is it's God himself who gives life to man. He breathes life into him. And it's only because of this that man becomes a living creature. God spoke everything else into being, and here we see there's even a, a more intricate uh, touch, intimate touch. He, he forms from the, the dust of the earth man. And of course, we, we think about the opposite. Because of the fall into sin, man returns to Dust. From dust and ashes you came to dust and ashes you shall return. We think about that on Ash Wednesday. But Genesis 2 18 through 25 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. So now we're going to hear about the creation of woman. But I, I like this verse here. It's not good that man should be alone. I think we need to, to press that a little bit further. What was not good about being alone? Or, or what was, I think sometimes people read it and they say, Oh, poor Adam, he was lonely or somehow life was was not good. Remember, God has already said everything is good, but now he says it's not good that man should be alone. Well, what is that talking about? I thought he just said everything's good.
1: He, he needs a helper.
0: Well, I, I would say, yeah, helper is maybe a term that has negative connotations, but that is the word, that is the way some translations translate it, and there's certainly nothing wrong with it. But let's let's put it this way what do all the, the beasts of the field, what do the birds of the air, what do the fish of the sea, what do they all have the ability to do at this point? Reproduce. Sure. God even blessed them, he says, uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters, fill the earth, fill the land, whatever. And at this point, there's no way for mankind to do that. Now, I, I don't want to make this sound like, you know, the sole purpose of of two human beings is simply reproduction, but I think We're talking about the first marriage here and I think it's important that we see this, that there is a component to marriage that involves at least the possibility of reproduction. Not that every marriage ends that way because not all of them, not all people are able to reproduce, but this is always part of the design for marriage. Now why do I say that? Obviously because in our world, especially in the recent decades, marriage has been redefined by the state or whoever else wants to try to make a definition. And they'll say something like, well, marriage is just, you know, the commitment between two loving people. But by design, marriage is between a man and a woman. And it has this idea, which obviously, that's the only way that there's a possibility of reproduction anyways. So anyways, without getting too far into that, I just wanted to point that out here. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. So this is by God's design that a woman is formed and he's the one who brings her to the man. And then the man has this reaction. He says, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So, I think it's, it's fascinating here uh, that from one flesh, God forms two. And yet, marriage is the rejoining of two into one flesh. So, it's fascinating. Obviously, marriage uh we we we'd say in the new testament itself is in, in the new testament sense i should say is a picture of the relationship between christ and his church but but i think um in our world when we talk about man and woman obviously the the big trend today is to deny any sort of distinction between the genders it's all that's all that's a man-made construct it's right. there's no such thing as gender or whatever which well, is
1: Well, that doesn't really matter
0: you, you want to talk about unscientific i mean right. that's just bizarre but also the distinction between the genders, men and women, they're different. But different in our culture has taken on a different, a, a dirty connotation. It's, it's a a bad. It's a right. negative. You know, you how dare you say men and women are different? Different is not bad. Different is a beautiful thing. It's by design. It's what God made us differently. But notice it's that compatibility. Uh, you know, that's the difference. Is is for our good. I think anybody who's married can tell you that obviously men and women you know think differently behave differently act differently not that we don't have a lot in common but there's different gifts that men have and different gifts that women have And that's good it's a beautiful thing especially you know together so differences are not in and of itself a bad thing i know that um, you know in our feminist culture and some of the feminist movement you know there's this push to you know break down barriers and there's certainly nothing wrong with women making Equal pay for equal work and all that stuff. But this idea that somehow women and men have to be the exact same and do
1: the same thing, do the same things, the same things
0: right. and you know, it, it's just not true. When we look at each other, we're f- physically built differently. Emotionally, we have different characteristics in general. I mean, obviously, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to stereotype men and women as this or that. But the, the point is, God has made us different, and different is a beautiful thing. It's, it's by design. We embrace it. We celebrate that. It's not something to be ashamed of, or to try to, you know, explain away or hide behind closed doors or whatever it might be. So Matthew sixteen twenty six says, "What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul?" So we've spoken about the creation of man and woman, uh, but we didn't talk about what constitutes a human being. We talk about. He gave them flesh and blood, so a body, right? But there's also this other part of human beings called a soul, which obviously, uh, you know, science can't really put a finger on the soul. You can't take a picture of it. No. I suppose we could say also the spirit. I mean, there's some debate whether man is a a dichotomy or a trichotomy in the sense of, is he three-part, body, soul, and spirit, or is soul and spirit essentially the same thing? So... The point, though, is that we're not just physical flesh and blood. There is a, there's a spiritual side to us, our soul, and that soul is eternal, the Bible says. So even after our body dies, that soul lives on. Not in the sense of reincarnation, some of these other ideas, but... Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the Bible only says that man is created in the image of God. Um, Now, it does talk about the animals having the breath of life in it. You'll find that in a couple passages later in Genesis. But animals are not made in the image of God. Only man is. Now, a lot of people don't understand what the image of God is, and so we say things all the time like, oh boy, you're the spitting image of your father, or you look, you, know, you look just like your mother, or whatever it might be. We think of that as a physical resemblance. Remember in the past lesson we talked about God being spirit. He doesn't have flesh and bones as you and I have. So we're not talking about a physical resemblance when people say, oh, but we're all made in the image of God. I don't think a lot of people even understand what that means in part because the Bible doesn't say a lot about it. Other, you know, It talks about man being made in the Im- image of God, but it, what is the definition of that? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? If it's not a physical resemblance, what, what, is, it, what is it talking about? And I think what you're going to find, which is interesting, is that you find reference to the image of God again in the New Testament, but here you see that it's being restored in believers. And we're going to read a couple of passages here in a second. I want to talk about the implications, though. If it's only now being restored in believers, this must mean that it was lost in the fall into sin. We had it. We had the image of God, and it was lost in the fall into sin, and now it's being restored in believers in Christ. So here's what here's what the New Testament says. In Colossians 3, it says you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So, in a certain sense, the image of God consisted of true knowledge of God. Adam and Eve were created in that perfect paradise that they lived in. They had a true understanding of God. They had true knowledge of God, like you and I don't. Right. I mean, we're we're growing in our knowledge of our Savior and, and of our our Creator, but they would have had uh, you know a, a more perfect understanding of God, knowledge of Him. Ephesians 4:24 says, "Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God." in true righteousness and holiness so at creation adam and eve had true holiness true righteousness it's only being restored now in believers which means that before we were believers we were unholy unrighteous right and i think so any discussion about the image of god has to be made with these things in mind uh Because I've heard that phrase to justify a lot of different things. Well, we're all made in the image of God, you know. Uh, Yeah, that was true of Adam and Eve, and we lost the image of God. Now, I think when most people mention it, what they're trying to say is there's value to all human life. And insofar as that's what they're saying, okay, good point. And it's true. I mean, that's true. Man is certainly, um, you know, different from the animals in that respect. We, We say he was the crown of creation, He has to have dominion over the earth. You know, uh, he even named the animals that God brought him to him and so on and so forth. So, well, this
1: is a good example too of why if you take one little part of the Bible and you want to explain everything with that one piece, you, you can't, you've got to use
0: scripture to interpret, right?
1: It gives you the answers. You just got to put it all together. It, it, Works itself.
0: Yeah, I would say the image of God is definitely one of those things where people have their own ideas about it, or they think they know what it means. But until you allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, then you start to see, oh, well, this is what it means when it's talking about the image of God. So that's creation. We talked about creation, man and woman, about some of the things that make man and woman unique or human beings unique. We talked about, the, uh, you know, the six days of creation. All of this is very different than evolutionary theory, which basically says that you are. An accident. There is no real purpose for your existence. You're just basically an animal, and you might as well act like an animal, anyways. And the the, the world is just a world of of uh, violence. It's survival of the fittest. So uh, there's no order or beauty or design. It's chaos, and you only the strong survive. That's really the whole premise of Darwinian
1: evolution. Right. You just have to make your way through it,
0: which really doesn't give us any explanation for things like a conscience or the order and the beauty that we see around us, that kind of thing. Or the fact, well, like I said, the conscience, the idea that it's not good to steal or to murder. Well, if evolution were true and it were survival of the fittest, those things would be advantageous, right? Only the strong survive. So we talked about that before. So... Obviously, the the biblical worldview of creation is very, very different. I would say polar opposite in many ways to evolutionary thought. And you can see how that would shape how you understand the world you live in, how you look at life itself, its purpose, and also how you face death and, and your values and what you think is important in life and so on. All of these things are shaped by how we understand who we are and how we came to be. So this is an important topic. Again, we'll we'll just try to explore more of this in in future episodes, but we want to we want to look at a couple more questions here. We know how God created the heavens and the earth. We know how He created man, but how does He preserve these things? Obviously, here we are, uh, years later, and we're still around. I would assume God has some part in that. I mean, unless He just created everything and then He sat back and stepped back and said, "Oh, okay, I think I'll watch for a while now."
1: The old man upstairs with a hat on, telling people to get off his lawn. That's right. Yep. Father time. Yep. Or, you know, the man upstairs. Or whatever way. whatever you want to call him. Yeah.
0: Uh, Hebrews 1.3. God the Son upholds the universe by the word of his power. Interesting. The same way that God created everything is the same means by which he preserves everything. He upholds everything by the word of his power. Now I'm going to say something controversial. I say this is a this is a very Lutheran thing to say, uh, because and I say this because as Lutherans we tend to emphasize that God comes to us. He works through His Word, through His sacraments. Here we have an example of even in terms of providence, God upholding all things by His Word. He doesn't say by His, uh, you know, brute strength or magical powers. It's by His His power His Word of power. Genesis 1.28, God blessed Adam and Eve and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, he's given uh, his creatures the ability to reproduce after their kind. And this is one of the things that was interesting in, uh, in Genesis 1, where we read about the different animals uh, on land and in sea that he created. It says that he created them according to their kinds so that that's a fascinating statement because evolution basically says there is no distinction in kinds we all sort of came from one thing and one thing evolved over millions and trillions of years into something else so you might have started you might have started as a single cell somehow that cell split into two uh, it, you know this ooze formed into something a little more solid Maybe you, you became a primitive whatever creature and then that turned into a snail and into a frog and into a bird and into an ape and then eventually down the line to you. And the Bible says God made everything according to their kinds. So maybe just a, a, an example of what we mean when we say kinds. Uh, a dog is a dog. If we study the science, we call them canines. That's the classification. You know, a, a cat is a feline or whatever uh, cows are bovine,
1: right? So... Dog can't have a cat. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Dogs don't turn into cats. Cats don't turn into cows, all that kind of thing. But we do see variation within kinds, within species. So for instance, with dogs, we can breed them to be big or very small, very hairy, hairless, uh, you know, long noses, short noses. And... All sorts of different colors, right? right? But they're still dogs. If you were to study, look at them under a microscope, the, the DNA, the genetics, all this stuff, it, they're still dogs. They're canine. Oddly enough, a Chihuahua and uh, a Great Dane, they're both dogs, even though they're radically different in size and so on and so forth. But um, you could say the same thing about cats, and, but also with human beings, right? So within the human race, there's, there's a, a great variation whether we talk about, you know, tall people, short people, different shades of skin, and yet we all came from the same place. We're all of the same race. We're all the same kind. We're all brothers and sisters. We're all genetically related. And I think it's interesting, even on, you know, like National Geographic or some of these channels that have all these specials, uh, every once in a while you'll see one that is the search for Eve or something like that. Right. You know, they're looking at genetics and trying to trace it back to the original human beings, and even scientists are are willing to concede that yeah, genetically we can all be traced back to the same parents. We're all blood in a certain sense. So obviously, there's no there's no room for racism in in Christianity or in the, in the Bible. That actually comes out of evolutionary thought. Think about it. You know, evolution basically says that there's this continuum where here's the primitive, here's what we've evolved to today, the pinnacle, and some people are lower on that scale than others. You know, that was the idea that Hitler had. Right. It's, it's the idea that evolutionary thought gave birth to what we would call modern racism, or racism just in general. The idea that some people are inherently better or more evolved, or smarter, or genetically superior, or whatever it might be, it's a thought not found in the Bible. It's a thought that comes from evolutionary theory. And it's a horrible thing. But, you know, that's that's where it comes from. I mean, I think it's it's uh, it needs to be exposed for what it is. It's not coming from the truth of the Scriptures. So, This idea that man is able to reproduce according to his kind, alongside of the animals that reproduce according to their kind, uh, he gives mankind the ability to reproduce. He says, be fruitful and multiply. And that blessing, it's a blessing. The ability to have children is a blessing. Children are never a burden or a curse. Every child is a blessing as a result of that first blessing where God said, be fruitful and multiply. That continues to ring out, and it's because of that blessing that mankind continues to be able to reproduce. So, we, we talk about, you know, children are a blessing from the Lord. Every every life is wanted. There's no such thing as an unwanted life. We, we could talk about a lot of different aspects of that, but um, let's continue. Genesis 8, while the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So, God gives us the necessities of life he gives us the sea- the seasons for growing and harvesting and the ability to, to have food and crops to build houses and so on and so forth the, the natural resources of the world, so to speak And uh, I don't, sometimes I don't know if we appreciate how these things come about because we've, we've got it so built into our routines. I mean most people think, where does food come from? Well, you go to Walmart and you get it off the shelf.:
1: Let's go to the grocery store and it's already prepackaged and then it's all you know it's all done for me. Right.
0: Out here you realize uh, how, how much the weather affects right. that whole chain of yeah, supply it does. and demand. I mean,
1: well, the only thing you see at the grocery store is prices go up. Yep.
0: So we're looking at the, the fields around us. We've got corn and soybeans and so on. And uh, this has been a good year for growing, as a side note. Psalm 145, the, aw- the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. You know when I was growing up, um this is going to make me sound old. We we always heard about um you know there's going to be a food shortage if the population continues to increase. Right. We're going to run out of food by the year whatever it was. And did that ever happen? No. No, it didn't. In fact, we have such a surplus of food that not only do we have more than we need, we we can send it off to other places of the world and there's more than anyone right. it could we, need.
1: We found ways to grow more with less resources and right. fixed.
0: And um, it's not to say, again, I'm not saying that there's not people who, who don't starve and that don't go without in the world. That's, that's a horrible thing. And we should certainly do our part to try to, to feed them too. But it's not for lack of food in our world. And it's, I mean, this is by God's providence that he's be able to, been able to provide for us and give us these resources. Psalm 91, verse 10. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. So it's God who... Who protects us, right, too? I think we take it for granted that if we get sick, we're going to go to the doctor and that medicine is going to make us well. Well, there's no real healing apart from God's providence. I mean, it's he who grants healing. Yes, he uses the means of medicine. He uses uh, doctors as his hands and, and so on to bring about healing. Um, so he, he certainly works through those things, but it's ultimately God who provides us with those things. Genesis 50, as for you, this, is, this comes at the end of Genesis where uh, Joseph is confronted by his brothers and he's revealed himself to them, and then they're kind of upset that, you know, after their dad dies, maybe Joseph's going to get even with us. Uh, great story. Wonderful verse here. Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, uh, Joseph, this is Joseph speaking to his brothers. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So even uh, the evil that Joseph's brothers intended toward him, God turned it. He turned it on its head, and he used it for good, not only for Joseph, but for all of his brothers and his whole family, for all of his people in the end, too. So it's amazing that God can even guard and protect us from evil and even turn evil for our good. He can work all things for our eternal good. Of course, that's what the Scriptures promise us. So. Fantastic. In terms of this, uh, we might say, well, what do we owe God for all of his goodness to us? First of all, there's an acknowledgement. Genesis 32 says, I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. So we acknowledge that we don't deserve any of God's benefits. He's provided us with this apart from anything that we've done uh, it's who he is he's gracious and loving toward us psalm 139 i praise you for i am fearfully and wonderfully made wonderful are your works my soul knows it very well so we praise and thank him for having so wonderfully made us and so graciously preserving us especially for loving us in christ from eternity before he even created us knowing that we would rebel against him in our sin Psalm 118, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Ephesians 1 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. First Peter five seven, cast all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. So, uh, we we can trust in him. We if he so graciously has provided for us in all other areas of our life, we can we can certainly trust him, in uh, in those areas that are the most troubling for us: our anxieties, our stresses, our our. our skeletons that we have in our closet, our sins, our guilty conscience. He's taking care of it in Christ his Son. Deuteronomy 10, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? So uh, we should gladly serve him all of our days. Uh, Of course, uh, that's easier said than done, right? I mean, this is what we should do. Unfortunately, that's a preaching of the law, and we'd have to admit uh, we have not done it perfectly, not as God has laid out for us. For that, we repent. We, We turn to God for forgiveness, and we find that forgiveness in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who took on human flesh, who died for our sins on the cross of Calvary, and who rose again victoriously so that he might share his victory over sin, death, and the devil with us. We're going to talk more about some of these aspects of creation in our next lesson where we look at the creation of the angels and we look at the creation of man and the fall into sin. So, thank you for joining us and we hope that you'll join us next time here on Under the Oaks.